Hi, I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, and welcome to All Tomorrow. Thank you for joining us. Vladimir Putin is a topic today, as the very controversial figure marked 20 years in office with a surprise announcement early in the new year that resonated all over the world. So, Peter, just when people were starting to speculate over his potential successor and who that would be, because his term ends in 2024, he recently proposed a sweeping constitutional change that really seems to guarantee that Russia will have no leader as long as Vladimir Putin is alive. This announcement led to the resignation of Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev and the rest of his government. Medvedev was quickly replaced by a tax bureaucrat, which according to most analysts is just a placeholder. And um, many other changes are set to take place in the following years. The bottom line is this announcement will be a massive redistribution of power. But taking a step back, 20 years is a very long time. An entire generation of Russians have not known another leader. And so today we'll talk about Putin's recent announcement, what it means, his really seemingly outsized power, his transformation, and the outlook for Russia under his rule. And to help us navigate these past two decades, we'll be joined by Andrew Weiss. He's a former NSC director and Russia expert at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. This will be Andrew's second visit to Altamar. Muni, Putin's story is a story that's, you know, it's almost like a Hollywood movie. And the movie is about how this sort of pretty run-of-the-mill KGB bureaucrat with very little political experience who was appointed prime minister of the largest country in the world by this old and sickly president, Boris Yeltsin, in 1998. And then he became president soon after and with youth and vigor and the general disillusionment with Russia's old oligarchy. All of these things sort of came together in a perfect mix and brew and suddenly we had this conversion of this guy who was a bureaucrat into somebody who seems to have become really a huge figure on the world stage in which Russians and foreigners alike placed their hopes for a new Russia. And actually what, what has happened is that we have Vladimir Putin as one of the most influential figures at this time. What's interesting, though, Peter, is um, when Putin first came to power, he, he was described as a forgettable character in Russia. And all of his early years, he seemed, this, uh, you know, friendly, market friendly, maybe even open to democracy. He supported institutions like NATO. He was a believer in trade and seemed at least ready to dialogue and open airspace with the West. So who knew what he would turn into? Today, Putin has morphed, as you said, into an authoritarian populist. He bombed the Chechens. He launched a war against Georgia. He boasts of manipulating the U.S. and actually does interfere in elections, makes kind of strange alliances with China. He's expanded, and that's the truth. Russia's influence deep into the Middle East. He ruthlessly cracks down on journalists and dissidents and anyone who opposes him. And then let's not forget that five years ago, he invaded Crimea and eastern Ukraine without hesitation in a move that was incredibly controversial. He's made significant inroads in Africa. The list is really endless. He's essentially oiled a political machine designed to keep him in power. His strategic prowess really, really cannot be denied. You know, it's said that Putin changed Russia as much as Russia changed Putin. You know, elected in the middle of an oil boom, he has navigated recessions and economic slowdowns and set three goals which he has managed to fulfill. The first one is to make sure Russia remains strong. Second one, to make sure his country is a formidable global player. And the third one is 
to stay in power. And he's succeeded at all of those. In the process, the Russian defense machine has flourished. And in all of that, this man of action persona that Putin has adopted means that he's consistently polling, as much as you can believe polls in Russia, he's consistently polling, you know, around 60-70% approval rating among Russians. So, Peter, so the Russian economy remains sluggish. Opposition is growing. This is the landscape. He made this really surprise announcement. His prime minister resigned. It's a maneuver that essentially the technical people can describe it as diminishing the scope of the presidency and increasing power for the prime ministry, which really is quite transparently could be a way to carve a lifelong position for himself. There are other positions that people think he might want to take as well, but certainly none of them includes him stepping down and out of the limelight. Now, remember, he's watched four U.S. presidents come and go, has had different relationships with each, has survived crippling sanctions and really held on to power, remaining very, very strong. The question is, how does he do it and how far he'll go? Time to bring in our guest. Andrew Weiss is the vice president for studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, specializing on Russia and Eurasia. Prior to joining Carnegie, he was the director of Rand Corporation's Center for Russia and Eurasia. He was also previously director for Russia, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff. He writes and comments extensively on this subject. Welcome back to Altamar, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, first question is the obvious one. What was this announcement all about? What's your, what's your view on it? I think it's too early to tell, honestly. And this is a classic case where the commentariat in Russia and in the West are all falling over themselves to interpret and explain what this is. Um, I'm still scratching my head. I think the simplest answer is that um, Russian political system has been wheezing lately because of all the speculation about what's going to happen in 2024 when, in theory, and I would sort of underline in theory, Putin is term limited out of office. And there was this jockeying going on where people were sort of not trying to look too interested in being the successor, but obviously that's the thing that everyone was uncertain about. In some ways, Putin has punctured the balloon and taken a lot of the impetus for that posturing and jockeying out of the, the picture now because no one can be confident that he's going to leave the scene in 2024. But the main thing he's done here is two things. One is he's put everyone off balance. And so he's reasserted that he's the central figure here and that he doesn't plan to give up power except under his own uh, steam or under his own terms. And then two, everyone now has to basically readjust to a new equilibrium. And there could be new alternatives, there could be new pathways for Putin to hold on to power, there could be new pathways for him to leave power if he chose to do that, which is still a remote, but not totally zero possibility. So, uh, you know, everything's clear to Putin, but the rest of us are just guessing. And we'll sort of know when we all know at the same time, you know, he pulls surprises, he's done this before. And now everyone's kind of rushing to both say, I saw it coming or uh, in the case of the Russian political elite, to sort of salute smartly and adjust. But can I just push you on this? So it's so interesting that your your take on this seems a bit different than what one reads, as you say, in the commentariat. I mean, if you read most of the op-eds and, and articles that explain basically lay out that this is the plan in which he is leader for life, you, you seem to throw some cold water on that. 
Well, I mean, Russian politics are inherently conspiratorial. That is the structure of how the system operates. It's been that way for most of the modern era, sort of going back to the 1500s or 1600s. It is also very personalistic. So things operate not on the basis of institutions or laws or constitutions. It's, you know, the whim of individuals and the deals they make between themselves. So in this case, we have Putin, who is the center of the system, but by no means omnipotent. And so he is, you know, the center of gravity, as I said, he's the person who kind of sets a lot of the parameters by which people operate. But you know, day in, day out, you see plenty of indications that for all of Putin's vaunted uh, power, there are plenty of people who run around ignoring his directives or failing to implement them. And that creates this kind of space under which people either enrich themselves or uh, squelch uh, initiative or find ways to maximize their own importance in the system. And so it's that kind of constant jockeying that makes Russian politics what it is. It's not that there's somehow a clock ticking down to 2024 and then Putin's got a, you know, it's like he's um, Cinderella at the ball. If he doesn't, you know, sort this all out, he's going to, he's going to go back to being the washerwoman. So it's, it's just, you know, it's, that's just not the way the game operates. He's such a interesting guy. I mean, let's take a wide angle look. I mean, I, away from this particular announcement and I mean, you know, he, here is the first phase was of a grayish former intelligence operative. Then he's turned into this president man of action, barebacked. And now he's, you know, created this new persona in which he's also this great infighter in which he possibly prolongs his, his stay. I mean, what's, what's your view of Putin as a man? Well, I think we tend to, you know, because it helps us understand the world, we tend to personify countries with leaders. And so in this case, Russia has had this one leader for the past 20 years. And so everyone sort of, you know, basically helps Putin build this hagiographic role for himself. He is a person who sort of lucked into the job of a lifetime 20 years ago. And then managed to outperform rather dramatically. I think people, when they picked him, picked him because they thought he would be somewhat malleable. He had no political base. He had no history as a public figure. And, you know, he way outperformed. He lucked out because, for example, the main role of Russia in the global economy was as a provider of raw materials. And Russia sort of rode the commodities wave that lasted through the 2007 and 2008 global financial crisis. And then he proved himself to be a very kind of like cunning and wily operative who, in very tactical way, plays off of his opponent's weaknesses and then operates very tactically to gain some kind of advantage for himself. But in the case of you know any number of issues, whether it's interfering in the U.S. election or the policy on Ukraine, you know he definitely has proven that he's really formidable. But the long-term strategic consequences for Russia are quite. Uh, potentially negative in the long run. So in the case of the U.S., he's created this image for himself as a formidable adversary of the United States, which is, I think, a, you know, something that will hurt Russia long term and make Russia feel far more insecure. In the case of Ukraine, he took what was a pretty cooperative, friendly neighboring country, and he's now sliced off the parts of it that were the most pro-Russian and left a rump Ukraine, which is, you know, I think, you know, going to be implacably hostile for generations to come and create, again, more insecurity. So show me where the strategic genius there is uh, in all of this. I, I frankly don't see it. 
Andrew, uh, Putin, during the last 10 years, as you just said, has presided over several difficult economic moments, but without suffering great political fallout. Now, today, the Russian economy doesn't seem to be picking up as some expected. First, what is the main threat to Russia's economy today? And how will Putin navigate it, do you think? Well, Putin is someone who has traded growth for stability. So after the crisis over Ukraine began in 2014, he dealt with the fact that global oil prices uh, corrected by basically making the Russian consumer bear the brunt of the adjustment. So the Russian economy has basically condemned itself structurally to low growth, anemic growth, like one or 2%, which if you're an emerging market, a country like Russia is, you know, way below what the norm is globally. At the same time, he's been stockpiling huge reserves. So Russia has, whether it's liquid or illiquid, is a subject debate, half a trillion dollars of money in the mattress to safeguard against, you know, some sort of either Western pressure or dislocation uh, globally. And he has basically tried to reduce the points of vulnerability that Russia might have to external pressure. So, for example, in the 2007-2008 global financial crisis hit, many Russian companies were heavily financing themselves through uh, support from Western private sources of funding. And there was a huge margin call in 2007-2008 when the Russian stock market tanked. So big tycoon type figures all had to suddenly either provide equity or make a margin call to Western creditors. Um, that is not the case now, sort of more than 10 years later, where the Russian sort of corporate elite are no longer financing themselves as, the, as they were 10 years ago. Um, so, so in some ways, the Russian economy looks more What's the word? Sort of, I don't want to say it's bulletproof, but looks less vulnerable to outside pressure. All of that comes at a great cost. It's it's basically socialized, and as I said earlier, it's sort of put on the back of the Russian people. This kind of stagnant lack of growth, but it's also um, you know basically provided for as the far as the eye can see what the deputy central bank governor of Russia calls eternal stagnation. So you know that that's the trade off: stability versus growth. And Putin's been, you know, with both feet squarely in the stability camp. One of the kind of common threads in in Russia analysis is that Putin wants to stand alongside China as a global power. Um, but there's a there's a strange relationship with China. They have collaborated on projects in the Arctic and other areas of the world. Do you see Putin with regard to China as trying to be lasting friends or just opportunistic allies? I think the short answer is yes, but I think the longer answer is that, you know, Putin is, yes, a consummate opportunist, but he's also very impulsive. And so it's probably a bit of a minority view in the field, but I would say that, you know, he made very impulsive moves in 2014 to annex Crimea and to launch this disastrous war in eastern Ukraine. At the time that Europe and the United States responded and said, we're going to isolate you economically and politically and try to put pressure on you. To reverse course, Putin latched onto this idea that, well, I'll show you guys, I have alternatives, and I'll buddy up with China, and China will compensate for the financing and the uh, raw materials uh, flows that, that are now being interrupted. And so he had, I think, a completely over-exaggerated sense of what, in practical terms, cooperating and embracing China would mean for Russia's economic vitality and for its political standing in the world. 
So now the West is obsessed, I think, with the possibility that we are seeing a very close relationship emerging in strategic terms and geopolitical terms between Russia and China. In economic terms, it's totally asymmetrical, where China, you know, looks at Russia as a country that has totally fallen down, uh, fallen, you know, fallen down on its luck, um, that used to be the big brother to China, but now is, is you know, a shadow of that. And China buys raw materials from Russia, but it buys raw materials from countries the world over. It's a buyer's market. Um, and so there's, you know, there's very little sentimentality that undergirds what China's doing. They have been very smart in, t- in how they've spread some of their support. They've largely targeted it for members of the Putin inner circle. They have not provided a blank check for the Russian economy as a whole. And so there's a huge gap between expectations and reality. Andrew, let me move from China to Russia's relationship with the United States. And, you know, I want to ask you a serious question, which is, if you were advising the next U.S. president, what would your advice be to him or her? But before the serious question, I want to ask you a slightly less serious question, but but very important one, which is, what really is the deal between Trump and Putin? I mean, there's so much speculation about what this relationship is about. How do you see this relationship? You know, nobody knows. I think the, you know, I'm one of these people, I'm probably always wrong about everything, but I, in general, tend not to believe in deep conspiracies. I think, you know, we had someone in Donald Trump who was a, you know, largely small time businessman in the New York property and sort of global property market, who then became this, you know, big marketing and TV phenomenon. A lot of the New York real estate market and, you know, high, high net worth real estate market in major cities in the United States was fueled by inflows of money from petrostates or countries that had, shall we say, you know, not fully transparent, not fully competitive economies. So, you know, he's always benefited from cozying up to folks from countries like Russia, where there's a lot of cash that needs to be basically laundered into investment vehicles in the West. So it made sense from him for him as a business proposition to run for president. I mean, I'm not telling you things you don't know that he thought that would sort of put the Trump brand into a better light. And then I think he got a lot further than he was expecting. He did all these things that the Mueller report documents in terms of misleading the public about his business goals in Russia and the contacts that uh, began as the Russian government basically tried to feel out the Trump administration, the Trump team's willingness to cozy up to Russia, didn't report any of those contacts to U.S. law enforcement, as best we can tell, and then, you know, benefited from this, you know, rather dramatic and flamboyant Russian effort to interfere in the election. And instead of condemning it, as other Republican candidates uh, in the 2016 electoral cycle did, Putin, I'm sorry, Trump embraced it. And so we have someone who didn't expect to win the presidency but who has had throughout his life both a commercial incentive to embrace Russia and other authoritarian governments, but also has just had a thing for authoritarian leaders, whether it's uh, Saddam Hussein or Deng Xiaoping um, or Vladimir Putin. So, you know, we have someone here who seems clearly to be pretty consistent in his behavior, both in terms of the self-dealing, but also in terms of the kind of just inability to understand the difference between the U.S. national interest and his own personal self-interest. Right. So let's move to the broader question, which is presuming that there is a chance for a new president to be elected. What would you see the main tenets of a a new president's Russia policy to be? I think it's 
you know, one, it, a lot of it's going to depend on how the Russians behave in the 2020 election, election cycle and whether we'll see this kind of very egregious effort to interfere. Um, there have been some reports which haven't gotten as much attention that the Russians are indeed as active or potentially more sophisticated in the ways they plan to interfere. That's, that's quite troubling. The toolkit for combating that is not great because in the normal order of things, you'd have a president who takes this stuff seriously instead of what we have, where the president seems to be embracing and welcoming foreign interference. So if there were a new administration, we'll see how, uh, how much further damage the Russians have done by the point which a new president takes office, whether it's in 2021 or 2025, we'll all, you know, we'll see. But, you know, my answer, which I don't think is terribly satisfying to people is, we need to be smart about the fact that this relationship is going to stay pretty toxic and acrimonious. And the challenge for any future president is going to be, can you manage that adversarial relationship effectively? Or is it going to be something that's kind of seat of the pants and potentially goes awry? We, the worst possible outcome would be for there to be some form of military clash or confrontation between the United States and Russia. I think we need to stand our ground and not be pushed around. Um, the Russians have tested us. And then, for example, in Syria, they paid a really dear price in early 2020, 2018 when they sent a group of mercenaries to challenge U.S. special operators um, in eastern Syria, and a couple hundred of them were killed uh, in the counterattack by U.S. forces. So, you know, we need to show that we mean business, but we shouldn't be going looking for trouble. There may be some efforts uh, that can be good for all of mankind to push uh, the U.S. and Russia back into some form of working together on arms control, but that all comes against a backdrop of both the Trump administration's willful attempt to abandon arms control and what remains of it, what very little remains of it, but also Russian cheating on uh, other arms control commitments, such as the INF Treaty, which just recently uh, was abrogated by the Trump team. So the final and sort of also, I think, just unsatisfying piece of this is we're going to be bumping up against each other globally in various regional conflicts. And that has to be handled carefully, but without, I think, either allowing the Russians to be a spoiler or sort of exaggerating their importance on the global stage, but also without kind of just gleefully ignoring them, trash talking them and denigrating them, because I think that's a, a self-defeating strategy for a future administration. Final question, Andrew, a little bit of forecasting. Putin was supposed to step down in 2024. The new announcement that he's made and the kind of shakeup in government seems to make uh, that step unlikely. What do you see playing out in Russia after 2024 or until then? I think that, you know, part of what's so problematic about the current moment is that the West's understanding and handle on things in Russia has been badly degraded, both because the society has become more closed and, you know, the level of access and interaction has, has been greatly reduced as a result of the crisis, but that, you know, somewhat was in train before the crisis began due to the secrecy and kind of conspiratorial nature of, of how Russia has been governed. But, you know, so I think we really don't have as good a handle on who we're dealing with. There's a lot of kind of black and white portrayals and, you know, the, the way the Russians have behaved clearly has sort of amplified that image of, you know, this is a country that's, you know, out of control and that's transgressing and that's not willing to live by the established rules of the road. I think all of that is certainly true, but we increasingly don't really know what we're dealing with. And in some respects, we've over-exaggerated and kind of made Russia seem like it's 10 feet tall. It's a country whose economy, depending on how you calculate it, is like one-twelfth or one-fifteenth the size of ours. 
It's a country that has a relatively you know, uh, small ability to use military force far beyond its borders. So you know, we should not sort of portray Russia as this global menace on the order of China. It's, it's obviously a far less capable country, but it's also shown that it's a more audacious country and that it's willing to take risks and do things um, as we've seen, whether uh, interfering in our election or the targeted killings Russia has pursued against political opponents, um, you know, it's willing to do things that are quite uh, dangerous and reckless. So all of that's to say, when you say, what are we going to be dealing with in the post-Putin era? Um, no one really knows. Um, but we certainly probably will be dealing with someone who has far less experience and who's far less sophisticated than Putin is. And so Putin has the benefit of having been in charge of things for more than two decades. He knows where everything, sort of how we got to where we are. Um, anyone who comes after him is going to be far more of a neophyte. And I think that will create its own share of risks and uncertainties. Andrew Weiss, thank you for your thoughtful analysis. And thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thanks so much for having me. So Peter, I've been reading the headlines and the analysts and the papers and, and really the points that Andrew makes are a little bit more complex. And it seems like what's happened is not black and white. It's not just one somersault that Putin has done to stay in power, but that there's also other factors in play. I wonder if this was a very well planned execution of a transfer of power as people have described it, or whether as Andrew has um, suggested, it's just kind of an impulsive move. And as Andrew said, it's hard to say. But one thing about Putin is that he's certainly been smart in the 20 years that he's been in power. He's certainly grown in power. And so if there's one thing that I would say about this guy is that he's been constantly underestimated by everybody else. And uh, I would not take bets that he is not go has maneuvered himself into a position in which he will be the key influencer for many, many years to come after 2024. And with that, thank you for listening to us at Altamar today. See you next time. Mm -hmm.